We pretty much use just about every single product that uh, Iron Source offers. We're, we're completely integrated with the platform. Of course, the mediation products, all ad, ad products, and the company that can assist us in doing UA and monetization and all the uh, additional products that come along with it. It takes a lot of uh, headache away from us. It takes a lot of the hard, busy work off of our hands, having a kind of an all-in-one platform. You just heard Andrew Stone. He's the CEO at Random Logic Games, who use IronSource's platform to grow their games in the smartest way possible. If you want to grow like Random Logic, you can get the SDK on IronSource's website. That's ironsrc.com. We all know it. Mobile marketing is going through a paradigm shift. With the industry moving towards a more aggregate way of measuring marketing efforts, Marketers' ability to measure and understand the impact of their marketing investments is further curtailed. AppSlyer, though, is not sitting on the sidelines. The company has set a goal to help their customers and the entire mobile ecosystem to successfully navigate the new era of mobile marketing. And that's where AppSlyer's latest product, the Incrementality Solution, comes to play. It's a product that truly empowers marketers to gain a better understanding of the real value that their marketing efforts hold. AppSlyer's incrementality solution is built around remarketing. It simplifies the process of designing, executing, and analyzing incremental lift tests at scale, which previously was something that only the biggest players on the market were able to do. With with incrementality, marketers can focus on the end goal of their test without actually having to worry about the heavy lifting that comes with it. To learn more about incrementality and to read the success stories from publishers like Kabam, I suggest you head out to appsliers.com. Hey everybody and welcome. Today we'll be talking about how to most effectively utilize consumer insights in gaming. From my own experience, I've seen a lot of research studies kind of gone wrong and due to various problems and errors have led to false conclusions. So today we will be discussing consumer insights with arguably the best CI practitioners in the entire industry. Can I say that, guys? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So first, we have Mark Allenbach, founder of Well Played Research. Second, Stan Kwan, founder of Beta Hat. Third, Matt Penfield, VP of Consumer Insights from Zynga. And our final speaker, Mike Swinkowski, head of global research and CI from Blizzard. Welcome, guys. Hey. Welcome. Thanks for having us. Thanks. So just kind of jumping right in, I thought we could start with kind of trying to understand what exactly is meant by CI or consumer insights and maybe speaking to some of the primary applications that CI is used for in gaming and maybe starting with you, Stan. Um, Yeah. So I I think there's, um, you know, when it comes to consumer insights, I think uh, a lot of organizations can kind of view it a little differently depending on how it's defined. Um, Generally, like the way that I view consumer insights is really understanding like why people are doing or taking actions, um, why people are behaving the way they are. Um, And in my own experience, you know, having, you know, led strategic planning teams at EA um, and Ubisoft and um, even on the uh, media side, uh, there's always kind of this mix up between 
consumer insights and UX and market research. And so for me, I kind of put them into three different buckets. Um, I would say the one is kind of market research, which is understanding what is happening outside of the four walls. Um, and that's more from a market performance perspective, like what games are selling, how are they selling, a lot of things, things that we would see in kind of third-party syndicated data sources like NPD or uh, maybe like a sensor tower or app any. Um, and then you have like what is happening kind of internally uh, within the organization, which falls under kind of business intelligence or internal business analytics. Um, and these are all metrics driven. Uh, and then consumer insights uh, is really about trying to explain why a lot of these things are happening. And so where kind of me and my firm sit is um, really helping to uncover uh, why some trends are unfolding uh, within the industry, uh, what people are thinking, and what we can imply uh, in terms of how they're thinking and how we can um, you know, apply that to either the marketing process or the game development process. Okay, and maybe Mike, what, what about for you guys? Yeah, totally agree. I, I like to describe it to you as Consumer Insights being the, the group that answers the questions about our players or potential ones that we can't answer purely with sales or analytics data. So understanding those, those motivations, um, you know, what, what ultimately drives things and it helps you can be used by pretty much any department i mean marketing is is a common user commercial teams others but uh development side events many different functions use consumer insights and mike can you give us an example of like what would be one of the primary kinds of tests that you guys run at you know blizzard sure there's there's a wide variety of uses uh and it's very custom so some, some common things we will do whether it's uh, you know kind of brand health tracking, understanding things about awareness, consideration, opportunities for your different games, profiles of your players, uh, who they are, what motivates them, what they care about, and understanding feedback on some potential ideas that that are out there. Whether it's you know new business models, marketing ideas, or uh, even even games when they're in a certain level of development. Okay. And what about you, Mark, at Well Played? And is, is there any specific application that you get more of than others? Yeah. So we're a qualitative firm. So we specialize in focus groups and relatively smaller samples. But what that means is that we're digging a lot deeper into that why that Stan was talking about before. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of the work that we're doing, I like to think about it. The, the easiest way to sum it up is we're, we're trying to be the voice of the player, right? So uh, we talk to them. And I think the thing that happens a lot across, like Stan mentioned, these three different buckets is that they're often integrated and used together. Uh, it's usually when they're the most powerful is when you start to look at the why from a place like Beta Hat, which is from a quantitative perspective. And then we get to go a little bit deeper and really ask specific questions of, of small groups of people about why they're doing the things that they're doing in their specific scenarios. So the most common kind of questions that we get tend to focus more along those. So it's uh, things like concepts, uh, things like positioning, where is this actually going to fit among the other games that these people are playing? And then helping explain some of the anomalies that uh, folks are seeing in their own data or in the kind of larger big data world by asking people directly, why do you do this? Or why is this something that's important to you? Okay. And then Matt at Zynga? Yeah. I you guys took all the easy 
answers. Um, so I, I think what I would add at Zynga, we have a really player-first uh, philosophy that management has kind of embraced and socialized and everybody down the line is bought into. And one of the benefits of the consumer insights function at Zynga that I really love is we answer the question qualitatively, Mark, to your point, what will players thank us for? So it, in the dev process, in the production process, teams typically have to have some rationale for why are we making this investment? Why do we think this is going to be a good game or a good feature? Or why do we think we need to pay this debt off on uh, our user experience? And I partner with teams and with other you know, groups within the org, uh, marketing or biz dev or even legal sometimes, just to sanity check that this is actually something that players are going to be happy about and grateful for. And dig a little deeper into who those players are and why, you know, we believe that over-serving them is going to really have a, a great outcome for them and for us as a business. So I, that's my North Star is, can I help the business figure out what players are going to be grateful for? And if I can, then we're adding a lot of value. Right. And Matt, Stan kind of broke out the various types of consumer insights that um, he looks at in terms of like, you know, UX focus versus more in terms of the product and things like that. Do you guys have a similar breakout or how, how do you guys view things? Yeah, it, I mean, it would be so boring if it's not your job. And I'm, I'm sure it's pretty similar to Mike's um, format, actually. So we align with kind of game development, right? So you have ideas and then you have execution and there's a continuum along um, the production timeline where you've, you go from having a great idea for a game or a feature into um, really building out the experience for players and ultimately putting it in software. And we are available to support at any point in that process. Um, so we evaluate ideas and figure out what makes them great. And then we try to track that all the way through to execution. So Consumer Insights gets very involved at the beginning yeah. Uh, and especially when we don't have a benchmark set. So Mike touched on this a little bit, but I think it's really important to call out that um, if your company is investing in a new business or you're trying a new feature for the first time, then you probably don't have internal benchmarks that you can comp to. And so I tend to get involved in those discussions about, hey, can we do <clears throat> some sort of competitive analysis or um, start to set some directional benchmarks around what we think good looks like. And then we can measure those once the feature gets a little more mature and reaches software stage. So it, I think Stan's rubric is right. His, his definition is right. Um, and we typically hand off along the way once we get closer to real software to other teams to do either, you know, I don't know, market analysis or uh, a UX and uh, uh, testing battery. All right. And maybe focusing on the product itself, maybe we could talk about like, let's, let's say at the early phase of development. So concept testing, and then maybe, you know, I know that some publishers or s some game companies will also, once a game is completed, try to test whether they want to fully launch the game or not. So maybe along those two types of like, how would you test those things? And what would be like common 
methodologies or approaches you could use to try and measure that? Again, maybe starting with you, Stan. Yeah, I think, you know, from my from my perspective, every organization treats that like what we'll call like the green lighting process, like yeah. very differently. And um, I think there are some myths around the green lighting process um, that there is a um, that there is kind of a set structure that every single game goes through. And I would say that, that some parts of that are true. And then some parts of that, I think, are very sort of a do, do fall under the myth category um, where you do have to have some sort of a process to understand, well, is this ready for prime time or not? And if it is ready for prime time, like, are people going to play it? Because ultimately the question is, are we creating something compelling enough um, that enough people are going to play it? And as a business, is this a worthwhile business decision for us? Um, now, each game, from my perspective, and even from my experience, um, having you know run like portfolio planning, is um, every game has a different history. Uh, every dev studio, you know, comes from a different background, and the the sort of the the journey that each game goes through is also very different. But we do want to get to that point of, well, how do we take all that context into account? Um, and how do we make sure that we're supporting the creative process while at the same time understanding the business realities and bringing those two together? Um, so it's it's always um, a, a, a process. And I would say from my you know, own experience, it's been very much a, um, I would say, a very bespoke uh, kind of process and methodology for each type of situation. And it's never really been like a one-size-fits-all type of approach. Okay. okay, what about you guys, uh, uh, Mike? Uh, I would say I 100% agree with Stan. It it varies a lot by company, but the, even within company where a game is or a franchise is in a situation, say you're, you know, an, an expected franchise, how you're going to handle it versus something brand new, how, how expensive it is, where, what confidence measures you have. And I like to view consumer insights as, one of similar to what Matt was talking about, how you have this path and we can help out in many different parts on that path. And sometimes you need a lot of help in one part and sometimes you need nothing. And it varies a lot by franchise and where, uh, where the game is in the path. And I view consumer insights in, in the, the best approaches. It's additive. Like we're helping inform a decision or um, information at when you need it. Sometimes like, you're through a certain path and you don't, you're good. You have other measures that, that you're fine with and, and maybe you don't need it as much and other times you need it a lot. Right. And Mike, for you, are you guys to some degree, like for concept testing, I know a lot of companies like to do Facebook ad tests, but given you're coming from a incredibly well-known company that any kind of Facebook ad test you put, put out will immediately be picked up by everyone in the press. So could you talk about some of the, limitations there or do you guys not do like for a, for a concept a facebook ad test for example yeah I, I can't think of a situation where we've would have done it for for a concept okay uh, in any sort of way the only time i've seen you know th that type of work is done for advertising you know of course clicking through but a concept there's way more that has to come with it than than what it looks like as, as a banner uh just way way more the decision 
points uh, involved in that process. Um, but they're, they're, they're all kind of, kind of unique there. I understand that. Yeah. Maybe you're a more smaller cost, quick, hyper casual game, just trying to get out there. Maybe, maybe it can work for that, but you know, for a company like us, not, not quite. You guys are then doing more qualitative focus group types of stuff or. Well, that's, yeah, that, that, that's part of, part of the picture. There's, there's other things that, that come into it. Um, we have a large company where we can get a lot of feedback internally safely, you know, right. from uh, employees that get to, you know, things kind of move out of, out of chunks, right? So say you have a development team and they're pressure testing some stuff among them. And then it moves to a wider group and a wider group and a wider group. And you can start getting feedback at many different levels, you know, uh, alpha tests, beta tests. You can, you can do things on a small scale. It's no longer like we have to make this decision early on and then we launch this, you know, $100 million uh, endeavor. There's so many steps where you can, you can get feedback on the process. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's not like a one hurdle thing, which is where people might think it is. And what about you, Mark? Are, are you doing a lot of qualitative stuff for concept or for yeah. you know, later phases of Greenlight? Yeah, a ton at both, really. Um, it, the thing that's changed the most, it's really interesting. This used to be a very short answer. You would get three paragraphs. You would show a focus group three paragraphs, and you would talk to them about which one they like the most and, and why. And each of those paragraphs might have a couple features under it in terms of a concept and feature set. Um, and now that's changed drastically to become, I would borderline say so custom that we almost never do even the same methodology for mm -hmm. a concept. Uh, we basically will design from the qualitative perspective methodologies around whatever that concept is. So in the last year, uh, just to give a couple quick examples, uh, we've done, uh, for example, seven fake announces of seven different games, six of which were red herrings, right? So getting around the issue you were talking about a minute ago. Uh, but uh, we've done soundscapes that go along with concepts to really help people get into the environment that that concept is supposed to feel like. Uh, and then more recently, with the kind of advent and accessibility of cloud gaming, we've been rolling in more actual prototype play as early as the, not the first concept, of course, but when you were talking about kind of that mid-stage when people are starting to have a first playable. Um, and that's become something that's actually feasible to do online, scary from a security perspective, but feasible uh, from, a from a technical perspective. Um, and so really we, we, it's probably the bulk of what we do uh, at this point is, is concepts either super early or kind of mid right at the beginning of, of uh, green light for games. Um, and it just changes depending on basically every single game we do it for. The, the secure the the leak worthiness that, that Mark talks about, and where you have to have some secure settings and situations. I mean, we we basically assume anything we put in a survey or anything like assume it's on the front page of every gaming publication within a minute of you putting it out. How are you going to feel? And you know how is how like how are all our executives going to feel about that? And we work under that assumption. Yeah. Uh, because it happens often, and I've seen it from our competitors in other places. Um, but to Mark's point, not everything you put in a concept means it's going to happen. It can be fake. There's lots yeah. of things you can do.
So red herrings and blinding is uh, very much a part of every process. Obviously, the gaming audience loves to talk about games. And um, there's always a chance that something ends up on Reddit. And, you know, I think we've gotten pretty savvy in terms of being able to cloak um, like what the kind of the actual intention is versus what we actually put in front of the consumer. Um, and so we've, um, you know, with a lot of those methods, especially with now everything going online, like there's a lot more sensitivities, but then at the same time, we have to be a lot more creative and protecting at least for like, you know, my clients that I work with, like the, you know, the products that they are working on. Um, but we do have these constraints. All right. And Matt Zinga is, pretty well known for being a highly data-driven company. Can you talk about some of the stuff you guys do? Yeah. It, you guys also have like a lot of mobile game companies, the fake LLCs that you run your tests through. Or <laughs> I know, right? So, so God, you guys are making me feel like maybe I'm out of step here because this whole notion of kind of bespoke projects for every single title, um, what I tried to do when I came to Zynga was really put a format in place that wasn't one size fits all it was scalable but we did have methodologies for every phase of production and so at concept we had kind of a qual and a quant um, menu selection that you could choose from to evaluate your idea or your ideas and then uh, at design we had a, a set of qual and quant um, test formats and then pre-production, we do a ton of software testing through that entire cycle, production, continue the software testing. And then once we get into alpha, beta, and obviously live, you know, you're getting real human metrics. So you need a little bit less about um, kind of what people think and feel and, and you can see what they do. Um, at that point, I usually pivot into uh, what's your roadmap look like team and how are we going to get you set up for a healthy business? And, you know, for us, a healthy business is like at least a hundred million a year, maybe, you know, ideally two to 250 um, with a minimum five-year life cycle. Right. So there's a huge content investment that has to come after we've established market success. So I'm not doing kind of one size fits all for every project and to your question, Joe, I'm really having to work super closely with our PM group mm -hmm. um, and our analytics group, frankly, just to understand, okay, do we have a set of KPIs that we believe are appropriate for this game? And do we have an audience uh, perspective or profile that we can draw on? Mike, I bet you see this a lot too. Like um, when it comes to sequels or flavors of games that we have expertise in, like at Zynga, obviously, we have kind of like Ville-based builder expertise. We have, uh, you know, word expertise. Um, it's really easy for us to be like 90% confident on a concept in those genres. We already know who the customer is. We've built games like that for a long time. So I don't have to do a lot of work on those games. They feel like sequels. But on games where, again, we don't have a lot of experience, it's really a, a ground up uh, process and and we don't necessarily have the benefit that Mike has at Blizzard of having a lot of internal subject matter expertise or or people who I would say would be the core target for the game so you know it I have to go outside and recruit those people and 
really figure out what's the right method to use to answer whatever the business question is and get the signal. And I, I'd be interested to hear from you guys. There's always a tension between kind of size of audience, right? And Stan and I have had this argument for literally for years about how, you know, what's a representative sample size look like and, and on the quantitative side and on the um, analytics side, uh, obviously you want larger numbers. And my experience is that if I get the right customer profile for a game idea, I can make a lot of insight from a very small sample. And I think Mark, you'd probably agree with me there, right? <laughs> like if we get 10 people who are hyper qualified to give an opinion about a game type, they're worth a lot of uh, kind of perspective and insight and value to the business. And so the tension that I have with my partners at Zynga is there's a bias toward large numbers and a bias toward quantitative insight. Um, and I really kind of firmly believe that if you give me some money and I can go out and find 10 people who are perfect for your game, and I know that there's a market on the global scale of, you know, 100 million people who look like those 10 people, then those 10 people have value. And we can use the data we collect from them to project kind of market success. So that it's, it's kind of an ongoing discussion, and it really, you know, depends on what type of game it is and what our internal level of expertise and comfort is. But I'm pretty fluid on flipping back and forth between qual and quant, quant and, you know, applying whatever's appropriate depending on the, the game design or the moment in time. Got it. So, to, to your point, uh, you know, I think, I don't think you're off base. I think it's a constant balance of the process, but not over process things right like you you have to have a kit you know a toolkit and how it goes and where it happens um but not create it so rigid that when the business industry changes that you you can't move and to the sample size i i uh, agree with you there i think the most important thing is qualification criteria like not all samples of 500 gamers are equal in any sort of way you hear that stan <laughs> you know, like, that's right buddy 500 well i think i'm you know i, I think I'm, I'm i'm pretty um uh, aggressive with my screening criteria i, I do, all right yeah know, we do kick fine. a lot I, of samples i'm look i'm a guy that has background in, in quant i i i love it and I, I use it a lot but how you handle the 500 like i could go to 30 different firms gaming and have them go out and who they screen out, who they screen in, uh, what you chose for your target audience of gamer. Like we're not all just games are going out to a target audience of general gamers. Like if I do that, say for World of Warcraft, I would have all this audience of people that don't even play PC that would never play an MMO and like they're literally not relevant. Um, so we, you know, you have to balance all those, those pieces together. Getting that qualification criteria is the most important thing to me. I also, I don't know about you guys, like, you know, Matt and, and Mike, I know from my time, you know, at, at um, you know, EA and even at CBS Interactive, it, it's also dependent on like who the stakeholders are 
like, and who the product leads are. Um, like some of them do have a, uh, a level of comfort with like having more numbers versus somebody who want, actually wants to hear the players talk about something. And um, there's always that sort of balancing act of like, we believe like this is the best methodology to get us from point A to point B and to help us with the right decision-making process. But at the same time, um, you know, that decision-making process doesn't involve just me, right? It involves a lot of other people. It involves a lot of alignment. And I would say like within CI departments, one of the kind of big value drivers of CI uh, when implemented well is um, like you're essentially more of a cross-functional aligner than like you are of just like the um, beacon of truth, right? It is, well, hey, like we're going to make, we're all going to hold hands and make decisions as an organization. Um, you know, do we have the right information? And as a CI organization, um, do you have, uh, are you generating enough confidence within the organization that like the decisions that are made, even if it's made on limited information, that we feel good and that we feel confident about the decisions that we're making. And sometimes in a creative industry, obviously, um, you know, you're taking a leap of faith with some studios or you're taking a leap of faith with some concepts. And um, there's a part of like just believing that something is going to work, even if you don't have the concrete data there. But as we make decisions along the way, like where can we get some consumer input that is going to help you know, with the right pivots when we need to make those pivots. And if we need to make a big decision, um, you know, that that it's not just a lot of infighting or whoever has the loudest voice within the room within an organization. It is it is based on, hey, we're we're actually looking at the same sort of level of truth here and we're operating and having a discussion based on like numbers and data or conversations or quotes that like we're actually hearing that we can then all agree on and then make decisions off of. So Stan, are you, the way that you're talking kind of sounds like to some degree CI is being used to help make product decisions. Are, are you guys kind of used as political grease in that sense? I mean, there's always, there's always political implications to uh, data, right? Like at any software company and any entertainment company. I think that Stan's point is really great. Like the most effective um, that my team and I are able to be at my company is when we're matrix integrated, right? So vertically, we're talking to our stakeholders and then horizontally, we're talking to our stakeholders, our peers. Um, and I'm talking to executives and my senior director's talking to GMs and my director's talking to you know product leads. And if we all understand, you know, what we believe the truth to be from a consumer perspective, and we go into a green light meeting and we're aligned, chances are we're going to come out of the green light meeting with funding and staffing. If we go into the green light meeting and, you know, the CEO looks at me and he says, what do you think about this? And I have to say, gosh, you know, the data we have does not support the investment, then things go badly. So I, I think Stan is right. Um, there is a lot of consensus building that happens. And I, I don't know about you, Mike, but I've seen a really pronounced shift um, in the area of focus for 
myself and the, the CI function in general at the companies I've been at in the past uh, 10 years from marketing, which is where I started kind of doing market research on ads and, you know, just consumer facing content to product strategy, which requires a very different perspective on the business and on, on the relationships that I maintain. So. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think that's actually just an evolution of the, the discipline over time, that the people that need consumer insights first in an organization as they're, as they're getting bigger is marketing. Like they, They're like, I need to figure out how to position this. I need some advertising. And those have the questions. But as you get more mature as an organization and bigger, there's other functions that need you actually a lot more. And i I would agree with you, like the percentage of my team and, and my own work that is, you know, purely the advertising marketing side versus other functional areas, particularly like product development, commercialization, other things, uh, the, the marketing share has gone down over time and other groups have seen the value and learned about it. And I view that as, as the, the group's just getting stronger and more trusted and reviewed. Like, hey, these same tools can be used for so many things. Um, and we're, we're yeah. kind of a neutral party in this. You know, we just, we just want to help people make more data-informed, smarter decisions. Yeah. It's um, it, 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 what I found recently, um, and, and I think there's like a, one of the big shifts that are happening within the industry right now is this kind of shift to free to play, which is like a mobile is kind of dictated now, like the business models of the future for console and HD. And one of the things that like mobile has done really well is you can like, uh, like in the console HD world, there is this handoff, right, of, hey, the uh, development teams create the game and then, okay, here you go, marketing, here's the game, now go sell this game. Um, and there are, in the past, kind of two separate research streams that are happening. One is the product development research stream, and then there is the marketing research stream, which is more about how do we convince players to download this game or buy this game and like what kind of words do we use and how do we get their emotions up and how do we make a trailer that just is going to make them feel like they're they feel badass and want to play this experience um but as we move more and more into the free-to-play kind of um you know like the free-to-play business model um I'm from my from my vantage point. I've actually seen um, a, a kind of a convergence or more of a consolidation between product and marketing, um, and where marketing needs to be brought kind of further into the process, so um, that they're fully aligned on like what product features are going in. And then at the same time, a retroactive conversation from marketers saying, hey, when we run UA campaigns, like this is what is performing, this is what is not performing. And someone on the dev side may not know what actually is performing in the market and what is not. So I've seen a um, kind of a, I would say a, a, a shift in, in recent years of, the two teams working more closer together. And I would say even a lot of the work that I've been doing recently is um, more aligning kind of marketing and development together to be on the same page. Um, I think in the traditional console HD space, like they were very separate 
but now we're we're seeing a lot more alignment and um and i think that does have to do with like the mobile mentality and and the free-to-play mentality so i do see that coming in right now okay and Maybe, Matt, one thing that you mentioned was that you, you, you guys are testing all along the way. I'm more used to, and again, the perspective I come from is more mobile free-to-play, but we would do an initial concept test, usually through Facebook ads, and then once a playable is ready, then there's some kind of testing to see whether we want to actually launch the game or, or not. I know a lot of... A lot of companies like to use NPS as an indicator for that, although I think that that's highly controversial. But wondering what you guys think in terms of that end, in terms of you know trying to determine for launch, are there any other methodologies that you guys have looked at? And do you guys believe in NPS? I, I, from my understanding, EA and Wargaming are really big on NPS. But what do you Yeah, I'll, let me take this one for a... I may talk a little bit long on this one, but um, two questions, right? One is is this idea of concept testing through um, Facebook or some other kind of ad method to test for heat. And when I started at Zynga seven years ago, um, that was what I walked into, was here's how we concept test. We put a bunch of ads on Facebook and whichever one gets the most clicks, that's the game we make or that's the feature we ship. And what has changed over time with that uh, method, I, in my experience, is that um, it's really easy to bias the result set that you get from that type of testing um, just based on art that you show, right? Like, the, that's not a test of a game. That's a test of a picture in an ad. And so it's a really, really good way to test if you have a clickable ad. It's not proven recently anyway to be a great way to test if you have a game that's going to make $300 million in a year. So the demands of the business have really scaled massively and the level of sophistication that we try to apply to kind of which ideas are we going to fund, even if it's seed fund, you know, right. engineers are expensive, um, devs are expensive, especially in San Francisco. Do we want to throw, you know, a couple million dollars at this we need to see something that's a little bit more than, you know, we saw some basis points of uh, performance that were better on uh, this ad A versus this ad B. So that's the concept test piece. That's why we, we invest a little bit more in qualitative and quantitative and, and really trying to understand who's the consumer and what's the idea. Great. Um, NPS, so when I was at EA, we started the NPS program and, and there were a couple of guys there who um, were really, really smart uh, quant guys, and they started it, and they got it up and running, and one of the first very um, profound uh, successes that I remember on NPS at EA was that we shipped Madden. I can't remember what year it was, but we shipped a Madden version, and the Madden version had like a direct TV package, the, the whatever the highest end price point uh, retail SKU was, had a direct TV package. And we had enabled NPS um, as an online tool that we could send out targeted uh, CRM surveys to people who had pre-ordered. And so people pre-ordered, we sent them a CRM survey. We said like, hey, how's your first day with Madden going? What's going on? And all of a sudden we were all standing around this guy's terminal and the NPS results were coming in and they were uh, getting word clouded. So we were seeing the qual results and the scores and the scores were terrible. 
And the qual results were all about the direct TV package not activating correctly. People were losing their minds, right? Because it was a huge selling point for the product. And I think the team, the, the Madden team is in Florida, so they're in Tiburon. And I think the team knew about it as well because they were monitoring CS channels. It was coming in through customer service. But because we were at HQ and, you know, like a few doors down from uh, Peter Moore's office, who was running sports at that time, it was really easy to take this information and be like, knock, knock. Um, so I'm, we're on top of this and here's the triage plan and here are the next steps to make sure these customers get what they paid for and we make this good. But it was a really, really powerful moment for that process of collecting feedback that was very timely and very relevant. Um, I came to Zynga and I asked around about NPS and I thought that I was gonna get thrown off the top of the building when I brought that up. People <laughs> were so allergic to it. And what I found out after talking to a lot of uh, internal team members was that on some teams, they had had their bonuses tied to NPS. And so there was this really significant financial kind of incentive or penalty um, when it came to NPS that made everyone very, very reluctant to engage with it uh, because they viewed it as unpredictable. And so the, the human response to that uh, in the business was, well, how do we make this more predictable? How do we game the NPS process so that we can stay at a baseline and we don't have to look over our shoulder if, if we have a release that isn't perfect and we're going to lose our bonuses. So people either didn't want it or whenever I would talk to them about it, they were like, here's how we do it. It has to be exactly this way because if we don't do it this way, we can't control it. And if we can't control it, we're not doing it, right? Which obviously nullifies any value you're going to get out of NPS. Yeah. So we just started, my team just started an NPS kind of it's not really even a reboot. It's more of just a, a data collection process. And I don't even want to call it NPS because all what we're calling it is a player pulse survey. It's really a satisfaction survey. So we don't ask the same format uh, that Bain developed for NPS, which is like a zero to 10 scale and a very specific and precise um, coding of the results and, and the um, coding of the language. Instead, we just ask, how satisfied are you with this experience? Like insert game name here um, on a survey that pops up in a player inbox. And then uh, a, a follow-up question that's optional that is, um, can you tell us why you said that? And that's it. And that I feel really good about because I do feel like, you know, that EA example was just so amazing and that we could look at that and say like, oh, it's people on the East Coast it looks like the demographic split is obviously kind of male, but these are like 25 to 35 year olds who are having this problem. Like we were able to do a lot um, with the NPS analytics that really helped us pinpoint the customers that were in distress, which I think is really valuable. And then from the qualitative, we were able to diagnose what the problem was, but I would never um, recommend that we tie it to a financial incentive or a performance incentive. I think as a diagnostic tool, um, satisfaction is important. Yeah, but I mean, I've seen a religious war around NPS, right? Like uh, some people are 
very for it. Some people are very against it. There seems like there's a lot of debate. I, I guess you're bringing up a point about the not only NPS itself, but the execution of NPS if it's tied to financial results and things like that. Then that yeah. could be a problem. But I don't know, Stan, Mike, or Mark, do you guys have any thoughts on the use of NPS itself, or is there a better way? Yeah, the NPS metric, like it's it's one question that got popularized from that Bain study a while back. I find people are on one end of the spectrum. They have a strong opinion about it. They hate it or they love it. And my view and, and my team's view is like, well, it's 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 one question. You know, we, we ask a bunch of survey metrics. It's one metric. Like you should never, if, if you're all in on one metric on, on anything, it, it gets dangerous. Like as soon as a company, as soon as I've seen companies focus in on one metric, whatever it is, as soon as, and then incentives and other things get tied to it, that metric stops being predictive as you want because everything changes around it. So my, my view is like we, we occasionally will ask the likelihood to recommend question in certain studies, but it's one question of many that, that we would report on. Uh, it would never be a standalone thing. It's not, we don't treat it any higher than, than other things. So if people want to ignore it, they can. And the calculation is also what comes up for debate as well. And I feel like the easiest way to answer it is just tell people what the percentage of the, the responses are on each. And if you don't want to use the calculation, you just want to use like the average or however you view it, you, you can do that. You know, we have no reason to hide, hide it in this, the magic of the calculation, but some people really like the calculation. So we'll give them that too. You know, yeah. it's, um, there's no reason to hide it, but it's it's just one metric. There's there's many others you can use. Yeah, I think there's a lot of um, I think there are there are a lot of sort of um, I think for those who are looking for some type of a holy grail, like they they're just thinking NPS can be that, and I think for organizations who lean too heavily into NPS, it is like. NPS is an oversimplification or they're seeking a simple solution to complex problems. And that's where NPS falls apart is it is singularly to be used to help assist and understand how uh, the customer experience is um, or how, how customer experience is impacting your brand. Um, and I've, I've seen it used in a lot of um, really strange ways where um, it is used in a green lighting process to say, would you recommend this game? And then people kind of looking at that and saying, okay, well, we're going to make some decisions based on it is not for, for a reason that is not meant to be used. So, um, you know, or they're looking at it towards as it, as if it's some sort of leading indicator. Um, but NPS was never designed um, to be a leading indicator. Um, it's it was always meant to be a lagging indicator, but um, a sort of grounding point for better understanding why people may feel a certain way. So, um, in Matt's uh, example of Madden. You know, NPS was highly successful there, and that's 
the purpose of NPS is to uncover why people may be really pissed off um, or it's less so about being happy. Like if they're happy about something, they're less likely to tell you that, oh, I'm really happy, but they're more willing to tell you when they're really mad. Um, but then when it's used as a forward looking metric, like, oh, hey, we want to run this concept test, but hey, like see if they'll recommend this. Yeah, concept. it's not a demand metric. And, and no. think about like our portfolio, Stan, how many people do you think I can get to answer an NPS question about a casino game effectively, right? Like, yeah. would you recommend this to your friends and family? People are like, uh, under no circumstances would I ever tell my friends and family I play casino <laughs> games on my mobile device, right? So, so we get back these scores that are like negative 700 on, <laughs> on casino games, and it's just not a useful benchmark because we know there's an audience for those games that love those games, right? So, yeah, I... You're totally right. It's not useful for demand, in my experience. I do want to bring up one, one anecdote, and, and I, I think Mark may um, ha has probably seen this in the past because he's been in the research industry for so long. But I'm not going to name the publisher, but um, you know, just in the past, I remember um, you know running some focus groups um, for a new concept and. Um, there was, uh, at the end of the focus group, um, the entire dev team was behind the, the one-sided mirror and we had them run through a, uh, slice of the game. And, um, there was a lot of great feedback that was coming from the play sessions and everyone was really engaged and, you know, calling out things like bugs, but at the same time, like just how they felt as they were playing the game. But then the the devs actually didn't seem to care all that much. Uh, what they really cared about was um, they asked um, they asked me to have all of the players or all of the participants um, put on the back of their sheet if they were to give this a review score from zero to ten. What would that review score be? Um, and so this was their way of trying to um, forecast what the Metacritic score was going to be for this game. And they would take these six participants, average their score together, and uh, they would omit the one guy who said gave it a zero because they were like, ah, well, I don't know, he's not a good participant anyway. And then when we average the five together, now we have an 8.1, like we're in business. Um, and like that is where research really goes wrong and um and uh you know I'm, I'm hoping a lot of that does not happen today but uh it definitely did happen before in the past and and to you know matt's point about incentives being misaligned um when uh, back then it was it was pretty common for game development studios to be um, to be incented based on like what their Metacritic score was or what certain review scores were going to be or some type of a metric. Um, and, and that's when things can really go awry and that's when things get gamed. Um, but I haven't seen a lot of that in recent days, thankfully. So maybe speaking more about focus groups, uh, could we talk about maybe what are good ways of running a focus group or where, where can it go too far where you can be focus group to death? And Mark, maybe since you're the qualitative yeah. 
you know, Guy, can, can you speak to that? So, I mean, a couple people have already talked about the single biggest issue, right, which is to Stan left to step out of when they all did the numbers, which is you have to take the two females out and then you have your whole female represent, you know, you split them all the way down to that. But like that's the single biggest error for sure uh, is mistaking this for something representative, uh, looking at numbers, uh, starting to split numbers and putting too much weight behind the numbers. Um, the other kind of most common ways that I think something gets focus grouped to death. I, I'm of the somewhat unpopular opinion that the game cannot be focus grouped to death because okay. fundamentally when you break it down, a focus group is talking to eight people uh, who are players of your game. Uh, so there is not any world in which that can be a bad thing. It can be poorly done. Uh, it can get weird results. The way that a game is killed by focus groups is after the focus groups, when the information is weaponized or taken wrong or not put into the proper context, right? Well, what about quality of stimuli, though, Mark? As I interrupt you, I'm sure you're going to say that next. But, like, you know, garbage in, garbage out, dude. I'm sure we've all been in groups where we're like, man... Do these guys really want this game to get made? Because I would not have shown those screenshots if I was going to fund this. But cool, let's see what players say. You know, like there's definitely better ways to, I guess, hedge your um, your process so that you get outcomes that are a little more realistic relative to market appetite, right? Well, for sure. But I think if you have garbage in and then garbage coming out, that's understanding the context of what you really have there. Those are some tough conversations that you end up not having with the direct people that you're, <laughs> that you're working on a project with. Right. Uh, and you know, you end up having afterwards about, well, there are real reasons that these results happened. I mean, I think having been in the qualitative industry for so long, uh, one of the most important things is adding context and just accepting that there are very real biases to the way that we do things. And there are very real biases to the answers that we get directly from participants and understanding some of that context and not being afraid to also be consultative in the end with the results, right? I, there's a lot of times where we come out of a focus group and we say, hey, the focus group said this, like, that's not a good idea. <laughs> or, you know, when you were actually in the room, you could feel the vibe of they were really saying this because there was one groupthink leader who felt a certain way and he kind of led them in that direction. But when you really listen between the lines, you get that way. So, you know, not being afraid to hear the player's voice, but then also really interpret that um, is really important because Stan, you gave the example of asking for review scores, you know, you're asking players to play reviewer, right? We, we try not to ask players to be anything but players. You can't ask a player to be a reviewer. You can't ask a player to be a developer. You can't ask a player to be a marketer, right? You can ask them questions that surround those things, but you then have to take those and give those to the marketer, to the developer, to the creative lead, and let them make the decisions. Because, you know, players are great. They're the lifeblood of literally everything that I do, but they're not everything. So you need to understand what they're saying and put it into context. Dude, amazing soundbite. I'm totally going to use that probably tomorrow when I have to go into an exec meeting and remind <laughs> everyone that players are just players, guys. They are not editors. So let's I, refocus. Yeah, I don't want to go too far down the anecdote route, but... I mean, I have two specific examples I can think of where we were doing focus groups. One is very fast. Uh, and the guy and the, the person said, opposite ends of the spectrum, the person said, you have a question in your discussion guide that says, how would you make this game better of the players? We can't 
we can't ask that. That would offend the people who are making the game. So don't ask them how they would make it better. You have to find a different way to answer that question. And then the other end of the spectrum, both of these are bad, by the way. And then the other end of the spectrum, which was somebody who said, if you don't have them circle whether this should be real-time or turn-based combat, how will I know what to do, right? Like, how will, yeah, that's a real anecdote, by the way. How will I know what to do? And in both of those cases, obviously, those are pretty extreme examples, both real examples, but extreme examples of, of what not to do. Right? But both, both huge successes, I'm assuming? <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah uh, actually, let me think. Starcraft was one. Yeah, played by millions, guys. <laughs> yeah, played right. by millions. <laughs> one a middling success, one never happened. Okay. So, Mark, how what what's the best insight or what's the best way, like, when you conduct a focus group, what should the takeaways be? Uh, well, it, really, it depends on the focus group, but that's a wholly unsatisfying answer. So, I think, uh, really, the takeaways, I, I think about it as... Stan used a phrase earlier that we use a lot. You want to support whatever the teams are that you're working with. So if that's marketing, a lot of times that's creative. If that's a development team, a lot of times that's, you know, supporting the actual developers. Um, and basically the takeaway should be, this is what the players said. This is what they feel. What are we going to do with it? Right. And that third step is the one that really, obviously, a lot of times I bow out of that um, because uh, as much as I'd love to be involved in it more, that's kind of the next phase where they take the research off. Um, but you really need to come out understanding what they said and then using that. We used to use the word ammunition, right? And then you get to use that how you like. I think that's a little, I think there's a little flaws of that metaphor. So we ended up using the word support instead. Um, but basically we want to support the team so that they know how players are thinking and they can decide what to do. More times than not, they don't do what was said in the group. You know, every single cover is not a scantily clad woman with a gun over her shoulder, right? That probably would be the case if I only asked 14-year-olds what should be on every single cover. Um, so understand why have those conversations and make, make informed decisions on your own. Yeah, I like the way Mark put it, that it's the coming out of it that these are the observations we heard. This is what heard. And now the players will jump into you. This is what you should do. You need to fix this. And that's the stuff you kind of want to like, because uh, th there may be very good reasons for why you wouldn't do that or you don't or they don't have all the context. A great example I run through is when people are like, well, ask them what they would want to do in the, the, the next version of this game. And they literally just take their favorite game or the two favorite games and combine them. And that's what they say that you should do. They're not like that helpful with that. But getting the observations like I feel this. This is where I'm confused. This is the parts that's frustrating. This is the parts that are exciting. That's those are the observations that you can do a lot with. Um, and it's really probably the best use of, of that work. Yeah. Mark, were you, uh, you, I think you were involved in this, but another example, Mike, that you just reminded me of where I think focus groups can be incredibly valuable for product development um, is just finding really jagged edges that are sticking out in a way that you don't expect about a product. And, you know, examples that are kind of recent and relevant for me are uh, we were in Europe doing some work on a, a game that is in development and we were just doing some character sketch um, check-ins and there was one character in a group that players just rejected, like violently rejected this character and we probed it and we got some responses 
and the team was a little shaken up about it. And, you know, they were like, well, what do we do about this? Do we pull the character out? Do we like, what do we do? So we made some changes to the sketch for the next round of groups that we were going to do, which were in another country. And, you know, the, the understanding that we went into that second round with was, look, if we get the same feedback, then, you know, there's a signal here and we should take it seriously. And we got the same feedback uh, even after the changes. And so that character, um, you know, underwent some pretty serious revision ex post that feedback. And um, since then has been really, really, it's kind of emerged as a fan favorite character. And so I think that's a, a, an example of how to process even extremely explicit negative feedback that if you're not intentional and thoughtful about how you, you know, position that to a team, you could just come back and be like, well, this character failed. So take it out, kill it. And potentially, you know, the game is tainted um, from that feedback. And that should never be the case, right? I think you need to be really thoughtful about um, the specific information that players are giving you. And then also try to apply context to it that gives the team some options, right? Like, it sounds like, Mike, you do this too. Part of my job is coming back with options. So here's what we heard, and, and here's what I believe that means based on experience and process. And here's the three things that I think you can do about it. And feel free to come back and give me like a more elegant solution, but we can move forward from this in these ways. This is not a, we're not at a terminal point in the product. And that is a really healthy way to use focus group information, I think, um, as opposed to just, you know, looking for the people who are going to tell you that they love it and throwing out the people who hate it or uh, getting really obsessive about people who don't like things who, you know, don't always represent a majority perspective. All right. So if that's a healthy way of using CI, maybe we could talk about the opposite, the, the unhealthy, the kind of pitfalls, like what are common mistakes that, you know, based upon your experience running CI, like, hey, watch out, let's not do this. Mark, you, you mentioned a couple of examples as well, but like, I don't know, uh, maybe starting with you, Stan, what should people avoid in, in terms of like, whether it's methodology or how to approach CI? Hmm. Um, you know, the, the first thing that comes to mind is, um, is, is, um, so, so I, I come from a, from a background where, um, I think CI is most effective when you are able to ask the right questions that align with what you're trying to achieve. And a lot of times there's, and I don't know if it's uh, like laziness or just, hey, this is the way we've been doing things. It's, um, you know, and, and I'm mainly a, a quantitative researcher. So kind of more like large scale surveys and stuff like that, where it's very easy to say, hey, we've been asking this type of question in this way with five points. And so I'm just going to lean into that every single time. Um I think one of the biggest, I would say, uh, pitfalls with um, kind of on the quantitative research side is um, relying a bit too on like methodologies that you believe are tried and true and losing sight of like, well, what are the actual questions that align best to 
the objectives that you're trying to solve for. And that really comes more from a perspective of like just needing to ask the right questions. So, um, you know, for me, it's more, I think, uh, even if you don't have the perfect methodology or it is not like a, a pure Gallup poll, um, you know, sponsored, but if you ask the right questions based on whether it's market performance data that you're seeing or whether it is like, a, hey, like there's a gap of knowledge here and we really need to understand how we can get to an answer. Um, like, I think asking the right questions is important. Um, and I've seen plenty of times where um, the intentions are right, but the but the way the questions are asked are are ineffective in, in trying to answer those questions. Okay, and maybe Mike? Sure, yeah. Um, one of the things where I've seen some, some pitfalls where people try and get players or potential ones to answer questions that they actually can't possibly answer. Or uh, some other bad examples I've seen in, in the past would be like, well, we went to this, we, we asked a, a bunch of potential players about their interest in the feature. I'd be like, oh, oh that's interesting. Where did you do it? Well, we went to the, the event where people paid $200 to get into the event that loved the franchise and they think this feature is great. It was like, like, that is not a good representation of your audience. Like if you want to get feedback on that event or you're, you're couching in and they're like, this is the super fan feedback. Like this is our VIPs or this is our high engagement. Like totally works for that. But saying like, this is representative of gamers overall. Um, I've seen those kind of pitfalls happen that can be really dangerous. And I, I think it's our, uh, our job as both on the client side and, and with partners that kind of wrangle, be like, this is what you're trying to answer. This is what's possible to answer. Here's how you can go about doing it and putting it in the right context where, um, you know, these things can be weaponized in, in dangerous ways with, without that. And Mark, I know you've already mentioned a couple of things, but do you have any others? Yeah, it, just uh, from a quick one that I can that comes to mind is the don't be too rigid in your definition of your audiences, particularly for qualitative. And then kind of a sub bullet of that is is don't use a firmly binary system to try to arrive to all of them. There are some really good implementations of this around segmentation tools and around really like well thought uh, ways to use a binary system to get down to a particular consumer like Matt was talking about before, finding the people that really matter. You can get a much smaller number. But I think... All right, Mark, what do you mean by a binary system? Sorry, um, and that actually may technically not even be the right term. I'm revealing myself to be a true qualitative person here. But in my head, when I say binary, I mean choosing between two things. So I think of a binary tool as... I'm going to oh, do you like this or that or something yes. like that. Do you like either a direct choice? It's more than two. That's why I'm probably wrong to use the term binary. But what I really mean is uh, they need to be this age, play this game, and have 10 plus hours of playing this other game, right? I would consider that a binary kind of flow. And what, the mistake I see a lot is you end up losing someone who would be an amazing fit either because of their personality or some of the things that they do outside of those five questions and who play nine and a half hours of your game, right? Um, and really what that comes from is, is people who don't understand games. So doing some level of fuzzy recruiting, kind of like a fuzzy <laughs> Google search, right? where you give partners uh, at least a little bit of leeway to say, I've talked to this person, 
you know, they said they only played nine and a half hours of Hearthstone, um, but, you know, they were playing, uh, uh, or a good example, they only reached, you know, level five last year in Hearth- in last season in Hearthstone. Uh, and then when you actually talk to them, it's because they only play off-meta decks because they find decks that they find, uh, you know, online, they find net decks to be super boring. So they play all these crazy decks, but they actually paid 300 hours, right? And so have a little bit more of a flexible qualification system as well. Yeah, understand what the spirit, let me try and do it a little bit quicker. Uh, understand what the spirit of your recruit is and recruit to that instead of being very rigid with three or four qualifications. Got it. And Matt? Those are all great examples. Stan, you kind of under-delivered, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I was expecting you to be like, these are all the things that my clients do badly. But I guess I'm not gonna I'm not gonna throw you under the bus. I guess you're just trying to be polite given the audience. Uh, so there's a couple of of very kind of consistent um, areas that I try to encourage improvement. Uh, one is coming to your CI partner um, or your CI function without a point of view. So it, coming to me and asking me. Um, tell me what to do about this problem I have is really difficult. It's difficult for me to boil the ocean for anyone. I mean, you can do it, but it's not worth throwing $10 million at some of these questions to answer them holistically. It's much more rational to come to me and say, uh, you know, we've taken a look at this in our game or in the marketplace, and, and here's our best thinking. And we were hoping that talking to players would give us a better perspective. Can you make some suggestions, right? And then that gives me a much narrower um, solution set to recommend from. So that's really helpful is just have a point of view, know your product, know your know, know as much as you can about your industry or your business. Um, and then one of the other areas that I actually think comes up pretty consistently is um, it's a a generic kind of presentation format where you guys probably all know this um, experientially and I see it so frequently. You get the most value out of consumer feedback when you give consumers things that are really different to respond to, right? So if I show you, I don't know, a, a WoW screenshot and then I show you a Battlefield screenshot, like you're going to have a, an opinion that's pretty divergent about both of those. Even if you like them, you're going to be able to tell me if you're qualified, uh, very specific things about those and that feedback will be differentiated. Um, if I show you a battlefield screenshot and a call of duty screenshot that looks exactly like the battlefield screenshot, it gets harder to really determine what the degree of difference is, right? So it requires more stimuli, it requires more discussion, it requires more energy. And so I really try to push my teams to um, give me kind of boundary breaking or edge case examples that I can put in front of consumers. So I, I ask them, hey, think about, you know, how far would you be comfortable taking this, right? Like how bloody would you make this? How you know, I don't know how extreme, how difficult would you make this? How confusing would you make this? Give me that example. And then give me something that is um, several degrees away from that on a spectrum. And that can even be like an art 
test, right? Like, give me a palette test or give me a, a game board test um, that's very kind of passive and neutral or pastel-y, and then give me something that's very primary. And always choose, you know, stimuli that's within reason that you would actually make or invest in, but that's going to get you the best feedback every time. Like, that's a, I think we make that mistake a lot. Um, I make it, you know, a few times a year where I'll put these ideas these um, concepts in front of players and they're so similar that players are like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, what's the difference between these things? I like this word in this one and I like that word in that one. And I'm like, okay, well, this stimuli wasn't different enough. We need to, you know, we need to pause and rewrite it in the back room and then try it again for the next group. Cause everybody's just kind of, they can't pick a winner and they can't pick a loser, which means that there's nothing separating these. Got it. So for a next question, I was wondering if we could talk about changes and kind of what's coming up in terms of emerging trends. So in terms of like the consumer insights discipline in gaming, can we talk about what has been some of the big changes over the years and how do you guys think it's going to evolve uh, in, in the near term future? Uh, maybe starting again with you, Stan? Um, you know, actually, I, you know, I would actually love to hear from uh, Mark on this because given everything that's happened, you know, obviously with COVID and everything, it's, it's really changed the way that we do research. And, um, I know it's impacted, you know, Mark, obviously a lot more than it has myself. So I would actually love to hear from Mark about like how, like the recent year, um, has actually changed, uh, the way we do research like online. Instead Is of this person. so, did you guys arrange this ahead of time? This feels like a, a handoff, guys. <laughs> I'm going to call it out. I'm calling you out on this. Yeah. Oh, by the way, Mark, <laughs> tell us I think you're doing. After this, I'd really like to hear about like how segmentations work and uh, more. I mean, I don't know. Really know oh, surprise. Yeah. No, no, no. So uh, I, I promise I will be brief with this, but Stan's right. I mean, I think the metric that uh, for people who maybe don't know as much about qualitative research is I spent probably on average over the last five years, 100 to 125 nights uh, on the road. Uh, and this year has been zero since March, right? Um, so add to that the fact that we I, <laughs> I actually built a facility about 10 feet to my left that also has yet to be used that was built in February. So, um, I mean, for us, the, the simple thing is that everything's moved online. Uh, and from a qualitative standpoint, that has some really, really amazing things. I've talked to people from West Virginia, from Alaska, had our first non-continental in Alaska last week. Uh, I talked to people in Montana regularly as part of our sample that has really helped us reach out to a lot more people because now the limiter is not how close you live to a facility in San Jose, Chicago, or New York. It's now if you have a computer. So that's one of the big changes. Uh, we've been talking to a lot more people. And then also... Um, the change that we mentioned earlier, which has been the biggest challenge, is security. So the, the technology we've we've invested in and has actually come works really well. We we piece together different pieces of uh, technology to make our own kind of online qualitative platform, um, and that stuff actually has been time consuming, but delivers pretty much the same result. Uh, the real, really big change has been with security uh, and being able to show some of these things and even let people play them at home in their own environment when you just lose a lot of control over what happens. I think if I had to pontificate on where this is gonna go, I get asked this question a lot and I would say, uh, I think from a qualitative standpoint, 
probably as much as half of this will stay online from now on. Um, as much as half of what, what I'm doing will stay online. There will always be a really big need for that security level of being in person. Matt, you had mentioned at Zynga that one of the big changes was moving a little bit more qual instead of purely quant, but was, was there anything else at Zynga that you guys have changed or will be changing? Yeah, I, I think there's two things. One is I completely agree with um, these guys about kind of the evolution of interaction with players and the consumer insights framework. I think that the tools and the technology have evolved, and I would, I would submit also that the player's level of sophistication has like massively evolved over the past seven years. I mean, I left, I started at Sony um, and then I went to EA and I left EA and went to Zynga. And when I went to Zynga, I was like, okay, all these mobile players are what at EA I would have considered to be more casual players, meaning that their kind of level of exposure to gaming as a lifestyle and their level of commitment to the product and kind of their awareness of design tropes and um, systems in games is pretty limited. Uh, they, they just don't have a lot of experience. And so, you know, they're seeing things um, in Candy Crush, like, I don't know, endowed progress and um, kind of cascade content. And they're seeing it for the first time and they're really loving it and responding to it in a way that um, is interesting to me coming from a, a much more kind of sophisticated audience for Bioware games or um, kind of Battlefield franchise games. And over the past seven years, what I've found is that the level of sophistication among those audiences has massively increased to the point where, Mike, I would probably put some of the core Blizzard fans in a room with the core Words with Friends fans. And those two groups of fans could endlessly debate all the reasons why developers are destroying their favorite franchise that they've devoted decade a decade plus of their life to um, because the developers don't understand the game. They don't have the same relationship that the players do. And, and these players are sophisticated. And some of them are, you know, 75-year-old women. And some of them are, you know, men who are college professors. Like, the, the breadth of the audience is global, to Mike's point, and very, very diverse. And now, um, thanks to, you know, I think some of the the mobile games that we've seen in the market and just the success of, of gaming as a lifestyle vertical, people, you know, are getting into games that in the past, they were so hardcore that even hardcore players wouldn't play them. And I'm getting, you know, stay-at-home moms coming into focus groups or doing remote interviews who are like, oh yeah, no, I lead a clan in, um, you know, this, this game, this mobile game, and it's really difficult to get everybody to do what I want, but they'll do it anyway. Like we'll have, you know, two hour dialogues um, about these incredibly sophisticated mechanics and, and how they manage group dynamics. And I think we started to see that in MMOs. So I'm sure Mike's familiar with it, but it's now it's everywhere. Like it's in our Harry Potter mobile game, you know, cause there's guilds in that game and we have guild leaders in that game and they spend the same amount of time on discord that people are spending on Discord and Marvel Strike Force. You know what I mean? And so the, the barrier between the level of sophistication and the commitment has diminished significantly, which is awesome. Because I think it means that as you know, 
people who work with game makers, there's so much more freedom and and the experiences that we can offer to players. Um, and as a researcher, what it's pushed me to have to do is find new methods to kind of collect data and just look for signal. And one thing that I've been super on the fringes about for years is the idea of biometric data as a useful tool for kind of collection and analysis of preference. And over the past couple of years, I've started to lean into it a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And it's starting, I think, to become a really robust um, data collection tool for us that helps us to separate the distinction between kind of system one response to information, right? Like subconscious or unconscious response and then conscious response, intentional response. So if I ask somebody to look at a picture and tell me what they think, um, I'm already kind of subverting the organic response to the picture because I'm asking them to be intentional about their feedback and they feel like they have to give me an answer. But if I show them a picture, I measure how much they're sweating and where their eyes are going. And then I ask them afterwards, so what did you think of that? Then I have two really, really strong data points that are giving me a signal. And if the signal converges, I have a lot more confidence um, in the feedback that I'm going to give uh, a studio partner or an executive. Um, and, and what I found is that adding that layer of um, technology to the conversation is very helpful in reassuring people, right? Like people who are, are concerned about CI as a function and, and worry about, you know, we don't have the right sample size or we don't have the right sample composition or qualitative versus quantitative. I have a bias on, on either of those methodologies. Just adding new ways to record consumer response helps to um, move conversations forward in a way that's really productive. Oh, sorry, for biometrics, you said you're measuring where the eyes are going, you're measuring sweat, and are you measuring like brain waves or what? Yeah, yeah, we do, we do some neuro, some EEG stuff as well. I, the trick with biometric is that it's expensive and it's kind of, um, it's very sciencey, but not Mark, in like Mark, a- Mark, Mark is laughing right now. <laughs> not in like a way that like is easy to understand. Well, dude, Mark, you should laugh because um, I, <laughs> I resisted this for years, like for a decade. I was like, no, thank you. I don't no, think I, this is going to work. Uh, when I was actually laughing, I was the expensive. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think expensive is a fair enough word. Like, uh, well, uh, listen, man. Remarkably expensive. Yeah. It, here's, the, here's the math, right? You guys have heard me. Well, Mike, you haven't. But um, Mark and Stan have heard me say this a lot of times. If you want me to deliver you high confidence that we're going to make more than $100 million, mm -hmm. it's going to cost some money for me to give you an answer that we all believe in. If it was easy to, to you know, hedge that, then everyone would make games that made $100 million. So okay. it, it really depends on how big is the bet and how confident do we want to be. You know, 90% of my job is de-risking investment. Right. 10 percent of my job is finding opportunity and the 10 percent it's only like once every five years that i find like a titanfall you know where i can't keep people from rushing the moderator because they want to steal the assets to take them home they love the game idea so much right that doesn't that happens almost never but most of the time people are like oh yeah if you just change this one thing or these two things, then I'd be way more into it. And 
and figuring that out and figuring out like how are we making this the best game possible for the most people like i need as many tools as i can get to do that at this point because everybody's a gamer so yeah maybe we could also talk about the flip side of that like the not so expensive and for maybe like a small dev studio can you guys what what recommendations would you guys have in terms of a small budget for ci what would you actually test? What's a good use of deploying capital for a smaller studio? And maybe I'll just open it up to anyone who can respond to that. So I can, I, I'm coming from a small studio, so I'm very interested. Yeah, I, I, and I can, and, and this kind of goes back to the previous question of like one of the kind of the biggest changes and trends happening in consumer insights. And um, I, one of the more exciting things, and I can even argue that this is kind of detrimental to my own business is that there is like uh, research technologies have come so far that um, it is very easy to deploy your own research um, and do it very cost effectively. Um, really, like the only reason why like firms, like agencies like mine exist is, hey, there, I just have some institutional knowledge about like the gaming space that I can add value to the analysis or whatever. But um, there are a lot of really smart people out there where now you have the tools to launch a survey, to do some online focus group testing, to do some user testing. And like a lot of those technologies have really gotten to the point where it's so accessible for smaller organizations to take advantage of where I think that's really exciting um, because now anyone can be a researcher, but I think the kind of pitfall there also is, okay, well, you want to make sure that you're asking the right questions and you want to make sure you're using those tools properly. And I think that's where you can lean into consultants to kind of help make sure that you're kind of asking the right questions or does designing an experiment in the appropriate way instead of like hiring a firm to do something. But like a lot of these tools are now available for anyone. Okay. I'd also say from that, like there, there are a lot of free tools. You can start small. You can, you know, you may not do the most sophisticated analysis in any sort of way, say on a quant thing, but say you have a game, you have an email, uh, email addresses from your players. You should you should be asking them some things. Ask ask some basic things. Also, it's it's worth talking with you know a uh, market research firm and seeing how they do a study once or twice. You know early on, take put that investment in. Even if you know you're not going to be able to do a lot of it, you're going to learn some best practices and things from that experience. Uh, working with them, and then you know as you scale up, and then you you can you can do more. Um, but keep, you need to be talking to your players and your potential players out there in however you can, if you have to do it, you know, in, in hacky small ways that are not as representative, uh, you know, you, it's still better than just talking to the people that's whole livelihood is dependent on this game. you right. Like that's, that's a, that's a biased group you should, and you don't want to just talk to your friends. You need to be talking to somebody that has no reason to say anything, you know, positive or negative to you. And it does need to come from a place of curiosity. Like it needs to come from like purely like, like I really do have a, a question that like I need some feedback on, not just I need to validate what I'm thinking or because validation, validation research is, is 
kind of a luxury for bigger organizations who really need some sort of a scapegoat if something doesn't go wrong from my perspective. Um, but when you're a smaller organization, like it, you know, that type of research, I think is a waste of time. I think it's, um, you know, now you're working towards something, you've reached some bottlenecks in terms of decision-making and there are, you know, some effective ways that, you know, it gives you enough information without, you know, going down the, big agency sort of, you know, uh, budgetary side of things where you can get the answers you need to give you the confidence um, to make those decisions. Yeah, there's also a lot of industry dialogue that happens, right? Like, I think this um, podcast is a really great resource for, um, you know, just figuring out what trends are and what conversations are happening. Uh, GDC is constantly releasing, you know, um, videos of past talks that are available for like zero or near zero uh, in cost. So there's a lot of historical information um, that can help you make decisions about game design and game development that'll put you kind of further down the decision tree than you might have started. And then, you know, I agree with Mike and Stan and Mark, like then just go find the people that you think are your players and talk to them. If you have to talk to them in a coffee shop, do it there. If you have to talk to them on a survey, do it there. If you can get them on discord, like do it there, but their feedback is going to be valuable. Even if their feedback is critical, that's, that's the best place to start. Great. Just, just to be super direct too, reach directly out to me. <laughs> if you want to do something qualitative and you have zero budget, I will help you figure out something to do. Small studios. I mean, we should I'm, talk, Mark. I didn't realize that this is a sliding <laughs> no. scale operation that you had running. No. So and I'll expect a refund. Yeah, that's right. Uh, totally not. No, I should be, but I should be clear. Where you know, we're. I'm happy to hop on calls with with anybody, right, and and talk about some of this stuff. And no, you know, there's a. I think what I'm trying to encourage is. I think Mike makes a great point to get out. You'll learn a lot from doing an actual study, but I think there's a lot of places that are probably pretty far from even that, right? Uh, even a small study of, you know, having a budget to do that. So just to reach out and get in a quick phone call, some moderation tips, some sample bias tips, some of the things that we'd think about. Listen, we all play games like we our intellectual curiosity is probably strong. One of the biggest reasons that we do this. Uh, so we're, we're we love talking about this stuff. I'm happy to talk about it. So I will put myself on the line here and say I will definitely respond to anybody who reaches out to us. Right. And so maybe final question then along those lines. And thanks, guys, for hanging on with me. I know we're running a little bit long here is is this is how should people think about in-house versus external CI? So I guess working with you, Mark, I mean, it seems like there's, you know, you can kind of enter pretty quickly. When should studios also think about building their own in-house CI? Uh, and maybe starting with you, Stan, in terms of maybe, you know, how, what, what are the situations where, or what are the types of clients that would be best to work with you? Or how do you think about in-house versus external? Yeah, no, um, so, uh, and I would just say like, you know, one, one of the reasons why I started uh, my firm was um, really just based out of my own experience on the client side, um, running research teams. And, you know, I'm definitely on the side of like, just roll up my sleeves and just do it myself. And I came into kind of a, a, a lot of situations where I would hire an external agency and I would feel very kind of 
unimpressed or would have to spoon feed a lot of information before I would get to the result that I, that I want. And, um, so in terms of, um, in, in terms of sort of external CI, I think just, um, you know, where there needs to be an area of specialization, um, where they bring meaningful value to a specific area that you are trying to solve for. Um, and I think this is a growing trend in kind of the research spaces, uh, kind of a move away from the uh, one-size-fits-all market research agency to ones that are a bit more boutique and, um, you know, are that specialize in very one specific thing. Like, you know, Matt mentioned, there's a biometric firm, you know, Mark, there was a reason he just focuses on qualitative research. I, I focus on quantitative research. I think when we focus on one specific thing, we can do things really, really well. Um, the in-house CI functions, you know, I think are really important to make sure that like, you know, the product managers and the marketing, um, you know, sort of like, like marketing managers are not just going out and getting the answers that they want to hear. Um, like there needs to be a kind of a culture of like the in-house CI teams really helping them be the purveyors of like hard truths. And, and it's not to give them bad news. It's to say, okay, well, um, like kind of a, um, like to, to, to instill more of a, like, yes, if culture within each studio of like, yeah, we can, we can achieve these things, but here are realistically all the barriers that you are going to run into if you want to do this. And just having that sort of central voice, uh, and that objective voice is is very uh, valuable to to an organization. Mike, yeah. So I'd say that there is an evolution that a gaming company will go through on the the in house to, to uh, outside. So if you're small, very very small, you know, you're you're under fifty, you're not going to to need a, a, a full time consumer insights person. Like you you just it's 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 not a hire you do in your first fifty employees, right? You get to a certain scale. They're like, okay, there's enough, there's enough work that I need somebody on this, and they are so. So in the smaller, smaller scale, you're working exclusively with external people, and maybe it's executive producers or marketing leads or whoever is is handling that, or maybe you, you can't afford it at all and you have to do some things on your own. Then you bring some some people in house, and they start to manage some on their own and some with external partners to help them scale, and that's where a lot of a lot of the gaming companies are in that place where they're getting to, they, they have a handful of, of CI people and they're working with some external partners and they're doing some stuff in-house as well. And then you can get to a certain bigger scale where you're like, well, actually we're running so much of this and we have so many brands, we should, we should bring a lot more of this full-time in-house. Like, like the user research function is, tends to be largely in, in-house for instance. Uh, and that's some things that happen. So it's, it's also a decision on how your org uh, works. Like if you're a company that likes to have more variable things, you can scale up and scale down. Like you're going to have a bunch of releases in one year. You're going to spend millions of dollars in research one year and the next year you're going to spend half that. Then maybe you don't have as many people full time in because uh, you, you need that variation. Um, but that's how this, this evolution that I've seen it, seen it work. I don't know if Matt, you have a similar 
situation? Or yeah, I mean, I was just thinking of when I started at Sony, it was me. We didn't have an insights function per se. We had a BI guy who encouraged me to do consumer research. And um, then I went to EA and we were small team internal uh, assigned to different BUs. We had a bunch of redundancy, like, you know, we were, we were sports and Sims and um, Bioware and Dice. And so each of those businesses had one or two people who were attached to them and they managed the projects and some of them were internal and some of them were external agency. Uh, and then, um, you know, what EA pivoted to, I know, was kind of a, a very significant investment in integrating CI and analytics, right? And so now they have probably 200 people in some function that touches what used to be CI and analytics as separate groups, right? And so I agree with you. I think there's a huge spectrum of, of investment that you can make and commitment that you can make. Um, the, the area that I, I really think is kind of most interesting that you guys talked about is um, just figuring out at what point you need to scale up that investment. And um, it, for me, it's always been at the point where there's a portfolio and you have to start making competing decisions, right? And it's very difficult um, to make informed competing decisions when the people who you're talking to about the information are executive producers or GMs or, or SVPs, and they're just fighting for uh, funding and resources. And it really helps to have a third party in the business that's neutral that can kind of help cut through some of that noise using, you know, consumer and, and market feedback to help. Um, the one thing I would say about external agencies, and Dan and Mark, you guys are so um, qualified uh, within this dialogue. If you're a small shop or you're starting out in CI and you want to know, or even in marketing or, or product, and you're like, hey, I don't know who I should hire to help me out with this project. You should only hire people who have worked in games. Do not hire people who do not have experience in games. Games is a ubiquitous entertainment experience at this point, but my experience is that it is still a very niche kind of coded industry. And anytime I've worked with a partner that is, you know, a AAA research agency that can do political research or packaged goods or entertainment, and I talk to them about games and they haven't worked in games before, they fail because they don't understand the coding and they don't understand the customer and they don't understand the subtext. And so I have had incredible success when I've hired people who have either worked in the industry or who are gamers um, or both, right? And, and that's how I, you know, came to know Stan and Mark. And I think the th three of us or the four of us on this call have a common friend, um, Nate Manzer, who was in research for a while and has now gone on to, to do some other things in the industry. But like, you know, if you love games and you work in research, um, then I'm interested in having a conversation with you about being a, a research partner. But if you haven't done it before, it's really hard for me to ever, you know, retain those people um, to, to give me feedback because they just don't know enough. They, they don't know what they don't know. Mark? 
I forgot the question. <laughs> I was listening. So listening. <laughs> uh, just in terms of like uh, in-house versus external CI. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, we're obviously external. Uh, I think uh, the, the, the thing that Mike mentioned that we're, we're starting to do some more of some of this stuff is starting to blend, but most of what we see as being entirely internal is still UX and uh, the user research side. Uh, some of those things are starting to blend where, like I mentioned before, we're doing some UX as part of our work because people really want to get their hands on a build or something like that. Um, but I, again, I, I actually don't have a ton to add to this. I think Matt, Matt covered it well, and it's a little self-serving to say it as somebody who does work entirely in games, but um, you know, making sure that the, the person that you're hiring and the, the place that you're hiring who is external knows games and, and, and really does, right? Ask the follow-up question beyond just, do you have a games expert? It's like, yeah, Matt's the games expert, or I shouldn't use Matt, you know, Jerry's the game expert, right? He's down the hall. You know, every partner is going to start there, but really ask for credentials and bona fides and projects I've worked on and stuff like that for external. <laughs> All right. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Just to wrap this all up, maybe if you have a final message for our audience or if there is a way for people to get in touch with you, maybe you could let us know. So starting with you, Stan. Yeah. So, um, so like I mentioned, the, um, the CEO of, um, a boutique research agency called beta hot, um, you know, to reach out to me, uh, my email is, uh, Stan at beta hat MR.com or our uh, website is beta hat MR.com. So, um, you can reach out to me there, Mike. Let me unmute. So yeah, I, I talked before I lead, lead consumer insights research at blizzard. Um, yeah, if you want to talk, if you're on the side, on the gaming side, you want to talk shop or you're somebody interested to get into it, uh, you know, please reach best way to get me is probably just, um, connect with me on LinkedIn and send a message. And, uh, the other thing I just leave people with is start. If, if you're not doing much, just start talking to your players and your potential ones, however you can, it's going to help you and know that not every project's going to lead to that incredible nugget, but, but some things will, and it, it'll change how you operate. Mark. Yeah, uh, I don't know that I mentioned it at the top, but uh, I run a firm called Well Played, uh, and you can reach me at mark at wellplayedllc.com. Uh, website's the same, wellplayedllc.com. Either that email or there's a form on there if there's any questions. And I guess the only thing I'll leave with is I'll double down. If anybody wants uh, some help doing some grassroots research, I'm always happy to do a call and give you some tips. All right, and finally, Matt. Dude, you are drawing fire from the rest of us. Nice work. Uh, this was really great, Joe. Thanks so much for inviting me. Um, I, I think I really agree with Mike. I, I love my job. I love this industry. I love making games. I love talking to gamers. Um, I, if I wasn't doing this as a career, I would be doing this full-time anyway. So, you know, like this is me getting to live my passion, and I, I'm grateful for that. And I suggest that anybody, you know, who's in the industry in any discipline, the more time you spend with your players, uh, the better your games are going to be, really. And, and everybody should probably spend about 20 to 30% more time with their players than they're already spending, even the people who are the most committed to kind of player feedback and, and customer feedback. We're not getting enough of it. Um, they have great ideas. They are much closer to the product than we are. And, you know, I can't tell you the number of times that 
I've sat across the table from a guy who looks a lot like me, like, you know, middle-aged white guy who's making games for, um, you know, teenagers or women. And I have to remind us both, like, we're not the customer here. So let's pause on our best thinking and let's go talk to some people who are actually touching this because they're the ones who are going to know better than we ever could what's going to make it better. All right. With that, thanks once again, everyone. And um, yeah, bye, everybody. <laughs> All right. Bye, thanks. Thank you for having us. Thank you, guys. Thanks.